First Kings. First Kings chapter one, verse one. It says, Now King David was old and stricken in years. First and Second Kings were originally just one book called Kings. That name was based on the first sentence, which says, Now Dave, King David was old and stricken in years. David had been the center of most of our studies in the last few books. But now the narrative is passing beyond King David to those who ruled after he dies. Now, the reason it became two books is because the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was around in Jesus' day, the 70 folks that participated in that translation, they were the first to divide the book into two parts. Their biggest reason was because of length issues. Greek uh, words are much longer than Hebrew words, and so if you had it just in one scroll, it was just too big of a scroll to keep it intact. Uh, They did the same thing for the book of Samuel. They called the books of Samuel first and second kingdoms, and then because kings continued the narrative of Samuel, its two parts were called third and fourth kingdoms. The name stuck when the Old Testament was translated into Latin, but the English translations of the Bible, they decided to return to the old Hebrew titles, but retained the two parts. So that's why you have 1st and 2nd Kings. While the person who wrote 1st and 2nd Kings is different than the person who wrote 1st and 2nd Samuel, the writer does pick up the narrative where 2nd Samuel ends, and he takes us all the way from David's last days to when Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city of Jerusalem. So, 450 years of Israel's history is recorded in these two books. But, 1st and 2nd Kings are not just a history book. It was written to a specific group of people for a specific purpose. The group of people that is being written to, we can know because 2nd Kings ends, the last event that's recorded in 2nd Kings, is about 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. But it makes no mention of Cyrus's decree that Israel can return home, which means it was written during the Babylonian exile. It was written to the people who were out of their homeland. It was written primarily for the Jewish people who had been taken into captivity and were now so very far from their home. Now, when Christians explain the Old Testament, they usually divide it into five sections. You got the law history, wisdom, major prophets, and minor prophets. You've probably heard that before. But the Hebrew Bible divides it into three sections, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the writings. What is interesting is that normally we might think like a history book would fall into the writings, not the prophets. However, first and second kings belong to the prophets. Now, that threefold division is, is how Jesus understood the Old Testament. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus, when he was walking with the lads on the road to Emmaus, and he explained to them, it says, from the beginning of Moses all the way through the prophets. But it says in 24, 44, that after he explained this to them, and then he, poof, he was there in the midst of all the disciples after they ran back and told everybody. He said unto them, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, those are the writings, concerning me. So, it's interesting that they thought of First and Second Kings as prophetic books. They aren't in the Bible just to record history for us. They are in the Bible to teach lessons 
from that history. They aren't in the Bible just as a record of events, but First and Second Kings are in our Bible to preserve the spiritual truths that are learned through those events. In fact, we know this is the case that because the author will make remarks all throughout 1 Kings. When he reads through it in 2 Kings, we're going to read here and he'll say, now, if you want to learn more about this king and the events of his reign, read this other book. He'll actually say that. I'm not telling you everything about this guy. If you want to find out more about him, read this book. So while the author pulled from a lot of other sources to write these books, the author was very selective with the events that they compiled which means the events he selected to share are designed to teach those who read it something specific. So, what did the Jews who were in exile in Babylon need to learn? What did they need to hear? Well, first off, they needed to hear that God didn't fail. This book addresses the burning question in every Jewish heart and Jewish mind in the city of Babylon. Did God fail? Has God failed? Is that why we're here? It's interesting because this is a very similar question to the one that Paul brings up at the very start of Romans chapter 9. He brings up the question that was often asked by opponents of Christianity who said, well, if Israel rejected their Messiah, doesn't that mean that God broke His promise? And the author of Kings gives the same answer that Paul gave to us in Romans 9, a resounding no. God did not fail. It is Israel who has failed. And the writer is saying, here is the record of how and why they failed, with the main focus being on our leaders, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. To prove this truth, the author organizes these books from the viewpoint he's going to evaluate the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Because right now with David, we've got a united kingdom, right? I mean, there's been a couple civil wars, but generally we've got one kingdom. But very shortly into 1 Kings, the kingdom is going to divide into two nations, two kingdoms. And so the author is going to evaluate all the kings of Israel and all the kings of Judah by the Mosaic law. Did these kings obey and keep the covenant that God made with Israel? Each king will be evaluated by his reaction to his covenant responsibility to the law of the Lord. And on that basis, each king will be said to either have done evil in the eyes of the Lord or have done right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, in addition to this, every king is also going to be measured by one other standard, King David. It will mention very clearly, he did this like David, but he didn't do this like David. Or he didn't do anything David did. Now, why would you do that with a man who was so flawed? Well, David was the man after God's own heart, and he is the pattern for all the kings, not because he was morally perfect, but because David never, ever turned, not even an inch, to serve idols. Never. We see this loyalty to God, despite David's failures, summed up in David's charge to Solomon before he died. Look at 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This kind of gives us the theme of this book. 1 Kings 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. 
and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and whithersoever you turn yourself. That is why everyone's going to be measured against David, because that was the focus of David's life. Did he fail sometimes? Yes, but he never, ever turned to idols. Israel's general failure over the years can be summed up in God's pronounced judgment upon Solomon. Look at 1 Kings 11. In 1 Kings 11, verses 9 through 11, it says in 1 Kings 11, 9, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, for as much as this is done of you, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely rend the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. The proof that God didn't fail, but that Israel did fail, is shown by the fact that the author gives only two kings out of 40 kings, only two, unqualified approval for their loyalty to the Lord. 40 kings, but only two does he say they followed after the Lord with all their heart like their forefather David. Hezekiah and Josiah, that's it. Every one of those 38 other kings in some way made some compromise as it concerned idols. Now, both of those kings are kings of Judah, which means every single king of Israel, the northern kingdom, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They didn't have a single godly king. Not even one was loyal to the Lord. And so the author is reinforcing this point. Guys, God did not fail. Israel did. We did. Now, you might be thinking, oh boy, Pastor, I was excited about First Kings, but now I see this is going to be just another depressing book like Judges, where things just go from bad to worse. But this isn't the only question that the book answers for the exiles. Did God fail? No, He did not fail. But that other part of the question, did God not just break His promise, but was God not able to keep His promise? Many of the Jews in exile wondered, was God not powerful enough to protect His people and His temple from the Babylonians? Are we here because maybe God was willing, but He's just not able to keep His promises? To answer that question, the author records events that clearly demonstrate God's power, God's control over everything, and God's faithfulness to His promises, even in Israel's disastrous fall. The book of 1 Kings, as we'll see in a little bit, begins by demonstrating that the Lord established Solomon and Jeroboam, both the southern and the northern kingdom, Solomon and Jeroboam's kingdoms, and then it concludes by demonstrating that it was not Babylon, but the Lord who destroyed those same two kingdoms that He just used Assyria and Babylon. Israel and Judah did not fall because the Lord could not protect His people. Their fall, just like their establishments, was orchestrated by God's almighty power and God's decree. Therefore, God is still worthy of His people's respect, trust, and obedience. He loves His people, and He is able and willing to help them still if they will turn back to Him. In fact, 
First and second kings show God's faithfulness to David and Israel because even in judgment, there was hope. By the time the author completes his work, the line of David not only still exists, but the very last section of second kings talks about how their king, the exiled king, was raised up to a position of honor at King Nebuchadnezzar's son's table. In other words, the book ends with a future that remains open for a new work of the Lord. And so because of that, ultimately, the book of First and Second Kings points to Jesus, the only hope for Israel and the rest of us. Which brings First and Second Kings 2,500 years down to our day and the questions we ask when disaster strikes in our lives. Did God fail? Is God able to keep His promises? Does God still love me? And where do I go from here? Anybody ever asked any of those questions? I think most of us have. I love what Wiseman said about kings. He said, kings is a story of the rise and fall of kingdoms, of high promise and abject failure, of tragedy and yet of hope. God made a beautiful promise to David and to Israel, covenants. But he also made a promise to discipline them if they failed to keep their covenant with him. We read about it in our scripture reading. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God tells David, David, you want to build me a house? Well, you can't build me a house. You're a man of war, got too much blood on your hands. But your son who will take the throne after you, he will build me a house. And I'm going to bless him and do great things. God makes this covenant with David saying, I'm never going to cast you off like I did Saul. But he inserts this. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established. In other words, even if I have to discipline him, even if I have to chasten, I will still establish your kingdom forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. How many kings do you think survive hostile takeovers like that? How many kingly lines? We're going to find out when we look at the northern kingdom, because it's going to start with Jeroboam, and then like four generations later, he gets, you know, his great-great-grandson gets, gets assassinated by one of his generals, and then that guy's son gets assassinated by another general, and then the next guy's son gets assassinated by somebody else, and there, there's like seven different dynasties in the northern kingdom. That's how things are in politics. Scorched earth, because you can't let anybody who can come back. No one left to take it back, the thing that you took from them. And yet at the end of Second Kings, we see David's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson in exile, but still alive. The line of Messiah is still there. To the point where centuries later, in the city of Bethlehem was born to us a Savior, Christ the Lord, Jesus, the Son of David. Kylan Dalich said, the author's intention is to show in the history of the kings how the law fulfilled his gracious word, how he first of all chastised the seed of David for its transgressions and then cast it off, but not forever, not forever. You see, kings is about covenants and character. 
It's about God's faithful character to keep his covenant with David and with Israel. And it's about Israel's unfaithful character and their failure to keep their covenant with the Lord. And so when we talk about what we're going to learn or how this is going to apply to us, J. Vernon McGee put it wonderfully. He said, the throne on earth must be in tune with the throne in heaven if blessings are to come. The throne on earth, right, the throne of our heart, it needs to be in tune with the throne of heaven if blessings are going to come. Well, we have a better covenant that is based on Jesus' faithfulness instead of our faithfulness. The truth of that has not changed. Kings serves, first king, second kings, they both serve as a warning of the consequences of disobedience, but also the blessing that comes from faithfulness. And first and second kings remind us that God will keep his promises even when we fail to keep our promises, and that there is hope when we experience his discipline if we turn our hearts back to him. That doesn't sound so depressing, does it? Much better than judges. Well, let's dive in with all these thoughts in mind, see how far we get. 1 Kings 1, verse 1. Now, King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. Wherefore his servants said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king, a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in your bosom, that my lord the king may get heat. So they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel, and they found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was very fair and cherished the king and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. No need to cover all that. Verse 5. <laughs> Nothing interesting there. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted. <laughs> Let's start off where, why are we getting this weird scenario here? David is dying. When it mentions that they, they, they covered him with clothes, it means like bedsheets. They just kept piling on blankets, but he could not become warm. He just was shivering. And, uh, our book jumps right into the reason why there are kings instead of just King David. David isn't just old and feeble at this point. He's dying. And as is the case with such persons, he has poor circulation, he's constantly shivering, he's basically just locked up in his bed just trying to still find a way to move forward in life. David at this point is about 70 years old. The hardships of his youth, the wounds of battle, and the sorrow of his later years have taken such a toll that there's not much energy left to govern. And his incapacitation means that he is at great risk of losing his throne. And given that David suffered multiple insurrections when he was healthy, his cabinet, his royal officers, all of his officials, they are deeply concerned for his safety, and so they make him a proposal. Wherefore, his servants, and the word servants there actually should say like government officials, his officers. His officers said to him, let there be sought for my lord the king a young virgin. <clears throat> let her stand before the king and cherish him and let her lie in thy bosom that my lord the king may get heat. Young here refers to a woman between the age of 12 to 15 normally. Sometimes it does refer to the higher teens, but given the fact that she's also a virgin, it is likely she is on the younger side. This age of 12 to 15 was the age a woman would get married back then. I realize that may be horrifying to some of you, but that's just how life was back then. If you could have kids, not only would you get married at that point in time, but you wanted to get married at that point in time because 
the thought in that mind, the most prestigious thing you could have as a woman is that you would give birth. That was not for men. That was how women viewed themselves. If a woman couldn't give birth, they thought they were deemed to be cursed by their, their fellow women. And it's just how it was viewed back then. So this would be a woman who was of marriageable age but was not married yet. And their goal is, king, we'd like her to stand before you, present herself to you, and cherish you. The word here, cherish, of course, we think of like marriage, love, and cherish. The word here does not mean any of that. It literally means to be a nurse. Let her be your personal nurse, your personal attendant. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, you could say that, Pastor Rowe. I don't know any nurse who's supposed to be doing what she's doing. <laughs> Give me a second. <laughs> Let her be your personal attendant, your nurse, and let her lie in your bosom that my Lord the King may get heat. The word lie in your bosom, it means exactly what it sounds like, to lay in an embrace. Now, this is a technique known as diathermy. Today, diathermy treatment uses electrical currents instead of 12-year-old to 15-year-old women. That's good. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? It's fun. Love being a Calvary Chapel pastor. You're going to teach through the whole Bible. This is one of those nights where you're like, I wish I was a Baptist. You know? <laughs> Today, diathermy treatment uses electrical currents to heat up the muscles and joints beneath the skin. But back then, they used people or frequently animals. In fact, there was an expression still in the 1700s where someone would say, it's a three-dog night. And it, the idea was is that you needed to sleep with three dogs all around you to keep you warm. And so the thought is that the body heat of a healthy person can be used to revive the departing vitality of a sick person. And those individuals were known as diathermists or diathermists. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And so that's what this young lady was. Uh, she was someone who had been set aside for that task. Now, I say all this, but personally, I do think the reason they suggested a young woman instead of an old wrinkly dude is because I think they hoped that she would also energize David. They did not want her to just be a nurse. They wanted her to become part of David's harem. They thought that the concept of a young woman's vitality in bed would become a reason for David to keep wanting to live despite his failing health, that it would somehow reinvigorate him and give him a reason to keep going. We will see why their motive is in this is important and why this story is even in the Bible when we get to chapter 2. We read this at the start, and you're like, what am I reading? Well, when you get to chapter 2, it's going to make sense. So you've got to roll with me for a few weeks on this. Right now, it sounds weird, but they had a, a reason for this that they knew that if David could not hold on and could not rule with strength, every one of them were in danger if someone tried to take the kingdom from them. So I do believe that even though they're proposing it in what seems to be just a medical term, I think they're hoping that he ends up sleeping with her, and then that will kind of wake him up and reinvigorate him. And so, verse 3, David agrees to the proposal. The search begins, and it says they sought for a fair damsel. See, this is their, they sought, they didn't propose a beautiful young girl, but they were looking for the most attractive young lady they could find. That wasn't part of their proposal to David. But again, I think they're looking to do more than just ease his discomfort. 
I think in their mind, David's excitement would be much more aroused by a beautiful young woman than in their mind, an unattractive woman, or like I said, an old dude with really good body heat. And yet, while David was open to their proposal to ease his pain, and it seems they did elevate her to concubine status, David did not buy into their plan to revive his energy for life. Because it says the damsel was very fair. It says they searched for a beautiful young girl throughout all the coasts of Israel, and they found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king, and she was. She was a knockout. And she became the nursemaid to the king. She became his personal attendant and ministered to him. But it says the king did not know her. And that's not didn't know about her. That's the biblical knowing. He never slept with her. Never slept with her. The Bible doesn't explain to us why David didn't engage with her sexually. I mean, if you look at his track record, it makes sense why they would think this would work. I do know this, though. I don't know why he didn't sleep with her or attempt to. I do know, though, that David never married another woman after Bathsheba. David had been multiplying wives up to that point, and after that all mess went down, never does David take another wife. We don't see him quite the same in his womanizing anymore after that. So while I don't know for sure, I like to think that David finally learned his lesson, that he wasn't supposed to be pursuing all his lustful desires like this. David's officials worried that his incapacity would make him vulnerable to insurrection, and when David doesn't revive from this, that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 5. Then. Then what? Because David didn't know her. David didn't revive. He didn't… He wasn't re-energized. Then. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Adonijah saw that not even this carnal plan could arouse David's energy, and he thought, now is my time. Adonijah is David's fourth son. He is the first in line to the throne because his three older brothers, all from different mothers, were dead. The first one, Amram, you remember what happened to him? Or Amnon, remember what happened to him? He raped his sister, and then Absalom, his third son, killed him. Now, his second son, his name has just run out of my mind. I think it begins with E, but I don't remember the full name. It's just gone, so I'm not going to belabor you. I try to figure it out. But those three boys were all dead. This guy is the oldest surviving son of David at this point. And in his mind, he's thinking, that throne should be mine. But David is not named a successor. David has not explained or publicly declared who will succeed him on the throne. Privately, he has made his decision. He's revealed that decision to a few of his closest advisors. But Adonijah is concerned, it's not going to be me. Now, Absalom had proclaimed himself uh, king just a few years before this. But this time, Adonijah thinks, I don't think dad can stop me. I don't think he's in shape to fight a war this time. And so what's interesting is Adonijah just pulls his king-making plans right from Absalom's textbook. It says he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Same exact thing that Absalom did. He starts parading around the kingdom like he's the man of honor, just like Absalom did. And note verse 6, his father had not displeased him at any time saying, why have you done so? 
The word displeased means to fight, fault, find fault with. At no point did David summon him in and go, I'm hearing you're doing this. What are you doing? What are you doing? At no point. David either, despite seeing a repeat scenario playing out before him that he'd already seen from Absalom, either David didn't have the energy or the wherewithal to confront Adonijah. And so Adonijah just moves ahead. And it adds to this that he had some other things going for him, for it says he also was a very goodly man. It means he was pleasant to look at. He was easy on the eyes. And his mother bare him after Absalom, just reminding us that he's the fourth son. He didn't have the same mom as Absalom, but he was the fourth son of David. And if you look at things the way that kings normally do things, he's next in line for the throne. So, we've got the situation now where Adonijah is winning favor with the people. He's parading himself around, and things are looking good. But even though that's the case, he cannot pull the trigger unless he gets some powerful individuals on his side. And so, in verse 7, it says he conferred, it says, with Joab, the son of Zeriah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they, following Adonijah, helped him. Now, The Bible doesn't tell us why Joab and Abiathar side with Adonijah. Um, They were already as high as they could go as it concerns their power and influence in the kingdom. So I don't know what it was that they were going to get out of this. I mean, perhaps Adonijah promised Abiathar that he would be the sole high priest, and he would no longer have to share that role with Zadok. I don't know. David had two high priests. I know that sounds weird, but that's how David did it. And so he never elevated one of them over the other. So maybe Adonijah promised Abiathar, and he said, support me, and I'll vote for you as high priest. I don't know. Perhaps Joab was worried that David, and rightfully so, that David would pick a successor who would avenge all of Joab's crimes, that David would go all godfather right before he died. (laughs) David did eventually. We'll get to that later too. Maybe Joab thought, David's been trying to get rid of me for years. And once he's gone, he may not feel bad about killing his nephew. Maybe the guy he puts in charge will tell him, make sure you kill that guy because he was a headache for me for 50 years. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us again. All we do know is that everyone else did not bite when Adonijah whispered in their ear. It says, but Zadok the priest, he's the other high priest. It says also Benaniah, uh, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, he was David's, the head of David's personal bodyguard. And he was the head of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, the elite warriors who were David's personal bodyguard. It says also Nathan the prophet, one of the spirit, no spiritual leaders are here aside from the high priest, but that's a little different than a prophet. Shimei and Rei and the mighty men which belonged to David, they were not with Adonijah. So, None of these guys supported as he started whispering in their ears. None of them bought in. These mighty men, these are all David's closest men, his strongest military people. One would question why Adonijah thought only having two prominent individuals behind him, he would succeed. And yet, despite only having these two very prominent individuals behind him, he thinks their support's enough to proceed with his plan. Now, the one that confuses me so much is probably Joab. Joab's one of those guys that's just really not complex. Seriously. Like, there are some people who are complex out there. And then there are some people that you don't get them because they're just not complex at all. Like, you think to yourself, you're like, oh, they're probably doing it because of this. And nope, 
There's no complexity there. They, they are very easy to understand. They are very simple in how, how they approach things. And Joab's mindset was really clear. Nobody messes with my family. That's it. The, I mean, that's the governing principle in everything about Joab's life. It made him savagely loyal to David, savagely loyal to him. I mean, murderously at times. He was wickedly sometimes loyal to David. So when you read about this with Joab, it just kind of begs the question, like, Joab, this seems to go against everything of who you are. And so I have to think in my mind that somehow Joab has to think, my family is in trouble if David gets to appoint the guy I think he's going to appoint. If Solomon becomes the next king, this will not be in the best interest of my family. And so perhaps Joab's passion for that, perhaps Abiathar's lending some type of spiritual support as the high priest that maybe he can say, I can get the people behind you. Maybe those two things convinced Adonijah that it was enough. So, verse 9, and Adonijah slew sheep and oxen and fat cattle by the stone of Zoheleth, which is by Enrogel, and he called all his brethren the king's sons and all the men of Judah the king's servants. But Nathan the prophet and Benaiah and the mighty men and Solomon his brother, he did not call. He didn't invite them. Now, the stone of Zoheleth translates to the serpent stone. I don't know if I'd want to hold a coronation ceremony at the serpent stone. That's just me. But this was a secluded area, though. It had a well, and it was on the border between Benjamin and Judah, which means not a whole lot of people out there. This is the same area where David spies kid from Absalom's men when he sent them into the city to get news from the high priests about what was going on with Absalom in the city. These guys hid in this area, maybe even in this very well. So I do think it's interesting that Adonijah did not, did not choose a more public place. I think it does show us that he's not as bold as Absalom was in believing that all Israel would rally to support him. And so his goal here is to convince his closest family members, aside from Solomon, and the local leaders of Judah that this is David's plan. His heart is not to create a civil war here. His mindset is, I want to create this environment of support and peace, and this is what my dad wants, so that I can deal with those who don't support me quietly and make them go away. Now, when we look at this list of people that were not invited, these seem like important people to invite to a coronation ceremony, doesn't it? Nathan the prophet... I mean, this is a guy who had spoken into David's life so many times. Benaiah is the personal bodyguard of the king. The mighty men, David's closest friends, the mightiest warriors in Israel. And then, of course, one of his brothers, the one that David had privately confided to a few people that he would be the next king. Adonijah's plans are clear. Because none of these men supported him none of them will survive his reign. And so not being invited here is as good as a death warrant for them and any family member who's associated with them. And so as David is at the edge of death, we already find that God's covenant promised to David is tested. 
Will God keep his promise or will God fail? Will God honor his covenant or is God not able to do so? Well, I'm going to stop here. I know it's really early. It's a miracle. But read ahead and then tune in next time to find out what happens. Because if we start this journey, like we get into verse 11, wherefore Nathan spoke unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, have you not heard? When we get into that, this, we're going to get into a whole political mess, and I don't want to just stop in the middle of it. So we'll quit here for tonight, and uh, you can hang out in fellowship, and uh, the kids for once will be waiting for us, or we'll be waiting for them instead of them waiting for us. So let's all stand. Worship team has no clue what to do. They're like, oh my goodness, he's done. (laughs) What are you questioning right now? Is there anything that you're kind of looking up and going, Lord, are you there? You know, if you're Nathan, Bathsheba, because Solomon's mom is going too if this goes down. Her life's on the line too. You know, if you're in those situations, what are you thinking? God, what's, what are you doing? Like, what's going on? Did you, have you dropped the ball? All right, do you see? And then you're looking over at your husband or looking over at your father and the king. You're looking over at the king going, what's going on? Sometimes in life we have situations that where we have to just look to the Lord and we have to go, Lord, I'm, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to keep doing things your way no matter what. And then that's what we're going to find out that these individuals do. They come to the king with their problem and they say, King David, this is what's going on. King David at that point, he could have just said, I'm too tired to mess with this. You guys got to deal with that on your own. But they trusted the Lord and they did it the right way. So we'll look at that next time. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, which gives us these truths that even when we fail, you don't fail. And so, Lord, if there's anyone tonight who's facing something where they're wondering, Lord, what about this promise you made to me? What about this promise from your word? What about this thing about your character? What about this thing that says that you've made this covenant with us? How does this thing in my life fit into that? Lord, help each and every one of us to be those who say to ourselves and obviously to you, Lord, we trust you because we know you never break your promises. You keep your covenants, and your character is always right. Help us to cling to that, that we might, our character might be the same, that we might conduct ourselves in a way that reflects your character, and we keep our promises to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.